Okay, so with a lull in the action, I think we can get started for today, right? Big news is endo test is over, neuro test is over, now it's my turn. Yeah. All right, immunology test on Wednesday. Remember, people in the lab, people take 378, go to Wheatley, because that's where you're going to sit down and take it so we can get everybody else in here, right? Looks like it'd be nice and comfortable today if we took a test today, but when, they, when the assembled multitudes get here, it'll be a lot more crowded. So if you guys are over there, you'll be happy and your colleagues will be happy over here. Remember, the test is on everything from day one until today. Yeah? Uh, right, I'm giving the exam, so study what I give you. Maybe I'll take it out of there, man. Maybe I'll make it 90-10. Maybe I'll, right? I mean, you've seen the first test, right? Yeah, on the website and on the, on Blackboard. I mean, there is a test there, so I'm not here to kill anybody, right? So it's just you can see it comes right out of the notes. So we're going to be able to do that, and what else? Oh, that's right. And remember, all this Camtasia stuff is on the is on Blackboard. So if, you're, if you want to look at the lectures on Blackboard, you can. So when we left on Friday and we were talking about macrophages, this is where we were. We were talking about the two different type of macrophages. We were able to subdivide macrophages into subclasses where we can have M1 macrophages or M2 macrophages. M1 macrophages are the initial aspects of inflammation in terms of intracellular killing and phagocytosis. And the M2 macrophages are a little bit later on in their sort of life system, lifestyle. And when we talk about M2s, we're talking about tissue remodeling and tissue repair for these uh, macrophages. So if we talk about macrophages themselves, right, we said that when the cells are in the bloodstream, they're monocytes, and they're going to move out into the tissue spaces. So they're going to be monocytes in the bloodstream. As they go out, then they're going to turn into macrophages, right? And now when they're into macrophages, they're ready to start patrolling the tissue spaces. They aren't quite activated yet, right? Because the first time they're going out, they're just sort of normal, unactivated cells, right? So they're going to be out there, and they're going to be waiting to come into contact with something. So they're normally in a, in a resting state. Macrophages need to become activated for them to carry out their phagocytosis and other things. And a whole bunch of different stimuli are going to be able to stimulate a macrophage. We've talked about phagocytosis. So when that macrophage comes into contact with an invader, that's going to stimulate phagocytosis. And as a matter of fact, this morning, this won a Nobel Prize. So the, the people who were investigating regular straight-up phagocytosis, right, they used their sort of a fly model. So two people won the Nobel Prize for that. And right, it was a, a three-people suite for immunology at Nobel Prizes today. And the other person won for his development of dendritic cells. We've talked a little bit about dendritic cells, right, but more Nobel Prizes for immunologists. All right, so phagocytosis is going to be able to stimulate a macrophage. So it's going to be able to detect and engulf 
Other sort of stimuli, we've talked about LPS, lipopolysaccharide, right? We said that that was able to stimulate B cells. It's also able to stimulate uh, macrophages. Other mediators that can be released by lymphocytes. So if B cells, or we haven't talked a lot about what T cells can do, but if B cells and T cells are in the area, they can release mediators to get macrophages into the area and get macrophages stimulated. And then there's a whole bunch of different pharmacological mediators that we can use to stimulate macrophages, and a bunch of these are used as uh, therapeutic agents as well. In terms of lymphocyte mediators, T helper cells, right, can release one of the more potent activators of macrophages, and that's the cytokine, right? We talked about cytokines being intracellular communication molecules of the immune system. And that cytokine is a cytokine that's called interferon gamma. Interferon is a member of a class of molecules that are called the interferons, right? They interfere with things, right? So the clever term interferon. So there's interferon alpha, interferon beta, and interferon gamma. In terms of stimulators of macrophages and being an, uh, uh, an activator from T cells, interferon gamma is the interferon of macrophages. And we'll talk later on about interferon alpha and interferon beta as being the interferons of viral infections, right? So they're going to be important for combating viral infections. The other part about macrophage activation has to do with what are called facultative parasites. And a facultative parasite is a parasite whose life cycle is going to include growing in a non-activated macrophages. So when you think about this, this is one of evolution's answer to phagocytosis. So imagine, if you will, right, you are, you're on the battlefield and you capture an enemy tank. Right? And the enemy tank is capable of driving like a, like a tank will. So you, as a member of the opposing force, jump into the tank, and now that you're in this tank, you can basically go anywhere you want in enemy territory. Clearly, you don't want to take that enemy tank and drive into your own territory, because if you don't tell anybody, then they're going to shoot you up. But if you turn the tank around and starting heading back in the other direction, you can go wherever you want in that tank. And you can get to any place you want to and create all sorts of havoc with that tank. So that's the idea of what's going on here. So when you have one of these organisms, and, and we've talked about phagocytosis. So there's the phagosome. There's our bean-shaped nucleus. Right? So you have these different sort of bacteria have now been engulfed by the macrophage. These parasites, and it's things like mycobacterium leperi, right, the, the etiological agents of leprosy, right, tuberculosis, Legionnaire's disease, all of these bugs, all of these bacteria are capable of growing inside a non-activated macrophage. And what they do, or apparently what they do is, they send out a signal, right, they release factors that prevents the lysosome from fusing and emptying their contents in to that phagolysosome. Right? 
So that's going to be prevented. So all these, right, when we talked the other day about the lysosome and the phagolysosome, all that's going to be inhibited. So basically what's going to happen is, right, we have this nice sort of in the mac macrophage, nice area where these bacteria are going to be able to multiply. In the old days, if we wanted to talk about an activated macrophage, this is the way we had to do it. When we're going to add interferon gamma or maybe LPS and we activate the macrophage for the second time, then this macrophage is capable of destroying those bacteria. And that's what our definition of an activated macrophage used to be. Right? If it's capable of destroying these facultative parasites, then it is said to be activated. Or it was said to be activated. It still probably is going to be activated. But nowadays, right, we have microscopes, we have all sorts of different things at our disposal. So we can see cellular changes that happen during macro macrophage activation. So you can see the cells get a little bit bigger. It adheres more to plastic. Right? Phagocytic cells are very good at adhering to plastic, so when it gets activated, it adheres even more, it hunkers down. You can start to see changes on the membrane taking place. You can see an increased amount of phagocytosis. You can see an increase in the, in the, in the number of the lysosomes themselves. Increases in synthesis of, of neutral proteases, right, as we're starting to crank up for this event of the phagolysosome to be able to take place. You can see an increased number of surface receptors. You can't see that with the microscope, but you can do biochemical uh, experiments to be able to see right, extra receptors appearing on the cell surface. And things like FC receptors right, are going to be, become stimulated on the top because that's so that macrophage could start to participate ever so quickly in FC-mediated or immune phagocytosis, right? So all these things take place. And the other thing, you can see increased tumorolysis, right? The immune system is capable of recognizing tumor cells. It is capable of recognizing transformed cells. And the macrophages, just like those NK cells that we talked about, where we talked about null cells, non-T, non-B cells. We said that NK cells were capable of recognizing and destroying tumor cells. Well, macrophages can recognize and destroy tumor cells as well. Right? There are a lot of therapies out there that will stimulate the cellular immune response as a way to get rid of tumors in patients. So increased tumorolysis is another change that's going to signify macrophage activation itself. So there is, hopefully this is going to work, oh, woohoo! So here, in this movie, we can see a macrophage chasing around this bacteria. <laughs> so this is showing chemotaxis, right, so clearly it's making it so it's pushing all these red blood cells out of the way. And we could put all sort of cool sound effects. Like, and then eventually, right, it engulfs it, and you can start to see, oh, come back here. You can start to see those granules start to fire. Oh, come on. You can see those, as replay. If I replay it, if I go to here, no, if I go to here, 
I just want to get the moment of capture. All right, so there's the moment of capture. So now it's inside. It's inside the phagosome, and clearly some sort of phagosome is forming. And you can kind of see in here, these are probably old ones with pieces of bacteria inside. And you can start to see that those black particles start to break apart right, and be digested. So that sort of shows both chemotaxis and phagocytosis that we've been talking about. Okay, so if I go back to here, go out of here, go out of here, end of slide. All right, so that's where we should have been the other day. And now let's start talking about inflammation. Right. This is going to basically wrap up what we need to talk about. So when we talk about inflammation, right, we're going to sort of put it all together now. Right? All these sort of concepts that we've been talking about before in terms of making antibodies and NK cells and macrophages by looking in general at inflammation. So the 25 cent de definition of inflammation is the response of living vascularized tissue to injury. So vascularized, it means right, tissues that have blood going through it. And that's basically any place in the body. Right? There's only a couple of places that aren't that really vascularized. And really, anything that can cause an injury is going to be able to start the inflammatory reaction. So things like a pathogen, things like some sort of chemical, right? If you, if you get some sort of injection, or if you get some sort of, or maybe even you get a chemical burn, right? Now, I'm not talking about the trauma of getting acid on your hand itself, right? That's really, right, the acid sort of eroding away skin and everything. But if you get a little bit of chemical, and that's going to be able to stimulate the immune response. And things even like a sunburn. The sunburn is an inflammatory process because those photons, right, from the sun are damaging cells in your skin. Right? That's what a sunburn is all about, right? Getting damage to the cells on your skin. So anything, any one of these, anything that injures is going to be able to start the inflammatory reaction itself. And if we look, you know, sort of in our, in our sort of cartoon of what's taking place, so you're working in your backyard or you get a splinter in your hand, this is trying to show a splinter, right? The splinter goes deep into your tissues, and it doesn't have to go all the way through your finger, right? It goes in, you know, through those first couple of layers of your skin. It's going to cause some sort of trauma, just the trauma of the splinter breaking and disrupting your basement membrane, right? And, and the cells that line the basement membrane, that's going to send off a signal that something is wrong, right? Because we're going to start to bleed as we sort of pull this splinter out. So what we're talking about here is certain uh, bacteria entering, right? So we are piercing that layer of the skin and we're allowing right, pathogens from the outside to make their way into the tissue spaces. So we have the trauma of the piercing of the skin itself, right? We need to start the coagulation process. We need to get macrophages over there. We need to get immune cells over there to protect so that nothing else gets inside. And then we have to be able to deal with these bacteria now in the tissue space. So we need cells to, right, to come along the capillary here and make their way out into the tissue spaces. And we're going to talk about how these cells get from inside the capillary to outside into the tissue spaces. 
So, there are basically two types of inflammation, acute inflammation and chronic inflammation. Acute inflammation, its hallmark, if you were to look at the tissues themselves, the hallmark of acute inflammation is that you can see neutrophils in the tissue. And acute inflammation is of short duration. It you know, goes anywhere from a couple of days to maybe a week. So everybody in this room has some feeling for acute inflammation. You get the flu, you get sick, right? something happens, you feel run down. Right? We'll talk about why all those things take place and why you feel the way you feel. Right? Within a week or so, you feel much better. Right? You can't even remember two weeks later, gee, I was sick, and, you know, or two years from now, how many times did you have the flu two years ago? Right? How many times did you not feel well two years ago? You don't even remember, right? It's of short duration and it was a positive outcome. There's also a different type of inflammation that's called chronic inflammation. And chronic inflammation is going to be characterized by macrophages and lymphocytes in the tissue. So the neutrophils get into the tissue first, and then they leave. And when they leave, inflammation is basically over. Right? Clearly, macrophages and lymphocytes will be there as well, but the neutrophils are the major uh, cells in the tissue. For chronic inflammation, the neutrophils have already gone, but if you look at the cellular signature of chronic inflammation in, in the skin and the tissue spaces, you can see they have many more macrophages and lymphocytes than would normally be there. And it's of long duration. It can last months to years. And we can have long-lasting changes in the tissue, right? We have those immune cells that are in the tissue for a long amount of time. They're probably going to do damage in those tissues. Right? We're really not sure what brings on chronic inflammation or why the cells stay there. There's probably something, right? It's thought that there's something still in the tissue spaces that are not allowing those macrophages and those lymphocytes to leave, right? We have to try to get rid of whatever that invader is or whatever that invader is secreting, right? So something is taking place. We're not really sure about it, right? But you can actually, you know, see if you compare, right, short duration, long duration, you can actually see those changes in the cellular populations that are out there. At the end of the day, we have to be able to have some sort of healing take place. We said the macrophages were going to be involved with that, right? They were going to secrete that special collagenase that they have, macrophage collagenase. That collagenase is going to start to break down collagen to start to prepare for those fibroblasts to release new collagen and to be able to make right, the, the repair that needs to take place. So the healing that takes place is either going to be called resolution and resolution is, it means that as it was before the injury. So you get that paper cut a couple of weeks later, right, days to weeks later. You don't have that paper cut anymore. You can't even see where that paper cut was, right? You have resolved. The other side to that is a repair, right? And a repair is characterized by deposition of scar tissue. And scar tissue basically is Right? The plugging up of whatever that injury was, right? The, the tear or the damage to the tissue or the skin was so great, 
right, that those macrophages didn't have time right, to be all sort of fine and, and, and make that resolution repair. They had to stimulate those fibroblasts to secrete large amounts of collagen and elastin to get that wound healed. So that's why you get a scar, because it's a little bit too big for the macrophages and all the other cells and, and, uh, and techniques involved with the resolution of that repair. So we basically just have to stop the bleeding as quickly as we can. So in general, this is what we're talking about when we talk of inflammation. Right? So everybody right, has a feeling for some of, the, some of the cardinal signs of the inflammatory response. <coughs> right? Now these cardinal signs were first described about 2,000 years ago. And we still use them today. So the four signs of inflammation, and you've all been exposed to these, the four signs of inflammation are rhubar, calore, tumor, and dolore. So rhubar means redness, calore from calorie, terms with heat. In fact, right, the, the word inflammation came from the Latin verb inflammare, means to set on fire. Everybody here has been sick, everybody's had a fever. So you sort of know about that one. Right? Two more, there can be a certain amount of swelling is going to be able to take place. And then Delore, there's going to be a certain amount of pain that's going to be able to take place. Right? So think about, let's not think about when you had the flu. Let's think about when you had that paper cut. Right? You had that paper cut. Now the redness that you saw, yeah, maybe you bled a little bit or when you sort of look at that cut, there's sort of a, 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 a redness around the cut itself. The bleeding has stopped, but it still looks red, right? The blood is still in the tissue spaces, right? If you feel where that cut was, you can actually feel heat because you have a whole bunch of extra blood making its way out into those spaces. There is some swelling because there's extra blood out in those tissue spaces and clearly there's going to be a little bit of pain associated with it. Right? So these signs are still used today when we talk about the inflammatory reaction. So all the different things that take place right, were first noted many, many thousands of years ago. So what's the first step? The first step of the inflammatory response is going to be an increase in blood flow. <coughs> It's called hyperemia. It's also called edema. Remember before when we talked about increased in vascular permeability? And we said when we had increased vascular permeability, we were getting blood out into the tissue spaces. We said that we had these capillaries, as our endothelial cells with the capillaries, right? and we were going to be able to get increased blood flow out into the tissue spaces from the capillaries themselves. That still takes place here, but right, edema and hyperemia is going to take place even before that. Right? This is going to be, this will absolutely, right, we're definitely going to talk about this in steps two and three. But in steps one, we're talking about increased blood flow. So there are some smooth muscle sphincters, right? smooth muscle cells that control blood flow to the capillaries bless you, they open up and they're going to let blood flow increase into the capillaries. 
So, these smooth muscle sphincter cells. Right? Everybody has some sort of, of experience with smooth muscle sphincters. Right? They're going to mean constriction of the capillaries and constriction of the circulatory system and that's what they are going to get paid to do. So let's think about what we got here. So this is our stereotypical circulatory system. So here's our veins, here's our arteries, right? So as we go from, right, arterial, as it goes from, right, to the artery, to arterioles, to the capillary system, right? We got, we start big and we're getting smaller and we're getting smaller and smaller and smaller. So right around here, are these smooth muscle sphincters. Now, clearly, I can't draw them. I'm not good enough to draw them. So what we're looking at here is, right, think about right, a muscle around a tube. So here's your capillaries, right? Your capillaries are over here. Not two L's. Your capillaries are here. Your capillaries are in here, right, going out into the tissue spaces. So these smooth muscle sphincters right, are constricting all the time. Right? And they're holding the blood flow from the main part of the circulatory system out into the capillary bed. They're holding it with some sort of stability. Right? So everybody has uh, thought, well, you probably haven't thought about it, but when you think about smooth muscle sphincters, you're thinking about Right? The one that you've been trained to use the most. And the one that you've been trained to use the most, you've been trained since you were, I don't know, one year old? Right? It's your urinary. It's the smooth muscle sphincters that sit around your bladder. Right? They are under your control. When you're one year old, they're not under your control. But you've been taught, you've been potty trained, right, to be able to use your smooth muscle sphincters so you don't get embarrassed in public. Right? But you've got a whole bunch of other smooth muscle sphincters. Your major, other major ones, right, are in your carotid artery. Right? They're the major sort of blood supply up and into your brain. Sometimes when you sit down and you stand up really fast, you get a little bit lightheaded. Right? That's because those smooth muscle sphincters that surround your carotid artery don't, const don't constrict fast enough. It means that blood started to flow out of your brain until those muscles in your carotid artery were able to clamp down and hold all that blood in your brain. So what's going to happen here is we're going to relax these. And when we relax these, this opens up a little bit. Because these smooth muscles are now relaxed, right? So they've gone from this to, and now we're increasing blood flow out into the capillary space. Right? It goes, that goes along with what we talked about here for increased vascular permeability. That's one of the things that's going to take place. So when we're looking at here, here's our redness, right? We're getting more red blood cells out there. Here's our calorie. It's getting warmer because more blood is flowing out there. Here's our swelling, 
right? Because we're getting extra blood into the tissue spaces, and maybe not so much the pain yet, but absolutely the dolore is starting to take place, right? So that's the first step. We need to get more blood out there. So now as we get more blood, all right, well, this is, right, these are the materials, the capillaries and the vitamins. As we get more blood out there, now our second step is increased vascular permeability. So we got a whole bunch of blood flowing out there, and now, right, we've talked about this before, we're going to relax these cells, these endothelial cells, and that's going to allow more, right, of the liquid portion, we'll only talk about the liquid portion of blood right now, to get out into the tissue spaces, right? Because here's our splinter, and here's our bacteria, right? Let's get some skin, and let's make the second one, blah, blah, blah. And here's our bacteria out here. We gotta get that extra liquid out there. We got that extra liquid out there because we want more complement molecules out there. We want more antibody molecules out there. We want all sorts of, right? immune defense molecules that are floating around inside the blood to get out into the tissue spaces, right? So those changes in osmotic pressure are gonna let those blood proteins and those cells go out into the tissue. That's where the swelling is gonna be able to take place. And it's gonna be driven by, right, chemical mediators. They're gonna act on those endothelial cells by opening up those gaps in the intracellular ju uh, junctions, just like we talked before. So we get that extra liquid is gonna make its way out into those tissue spaces. Clearly the cells will follow, right? But we're gonna get those, those extra, liquid, li extra liquid portion of the blood out there. So what are the mediators that are going to be able to carry out right, the relaxation of these junctions between these endothelial cells. Well, they're going to be synthesized lipid mediators. There are a whole bunch of different lipid mediators out there in the body, and we're going to talk about a couple of them. So what we're going to do is, right, we have in our cells, right, we have our, our, bio, right, our membrane bilayer. We've got a whole bunch of lipids, right, the amino acid, I mean the fatty acid parts that hang down inside the cell. We're going to start by modifying some of these lipids. And we're going to start by using the enzyme right, phospholipase A2. And we're going to change a lot of these lipids on the inner surface of the cell membrane into arachidonic acid. Right? That's our first sort of dividing step that we need to look at. And from arachidonic acid, we can go down basically two different pathways, either like the, the, the lipoxygenase pathway to make what are called leukotrienes, or we can go down the cyclooxygenase pathway to make prostaglandins. So leukotrienes and prostaglandins are the mediators that we need to talk about. So we can start with right, these membrane phospholipids, phospholipase A2, going to be able to act on them to make arachidonic acid. We're going to go down the cyclooxygenase pathway or down the lipoxygenase pathway. When it comes to these mediators themselves, right, we're just going to talk about the activity that they have for the immune system. But leukotrienes and prostaglandins have a whole bunch of different other mechanisms that they use right, to 
control a whole bunch of other body sort of functions themselves, right? These chemical mediators are going to be used by a whole bunch of other different cells and they're going to be able to manipulate them to make different types of prostaglandins, different types of leukotrienes, right? Here, we're talking about leukotriene E4. It's a PMN, it's a neutrophil-derived dilator. So the dilation that's going to be able to take place here, the dilation that's going to be able to take place here. Prostaglandins, we have a whole bunch of different prostaglandins, PGE2, PGD2, PGI2. PGE2 is a, another mediator that's derived from neutrophils. PGD2 comes from mast cells. PGI2 comes from the endothelial cells themselves. So they're all going to be able to act on these cells to relax them and increase vascular permeability. Everybody in this room has some experience with prostaglandins and the cyclooxygenase pathway. Probably, probably a certain amount of people in this room have the major drug that works on the cyclooxygenase pathway. Right? There was a big breakthrough in the 1800s when salicylic acid was first discovered. And salicylic acid was found right, to give relief for headaches. The first really big drug. We still use it today. I'm sure you still have your bare aspirin in your, right, or all sorts of other different aspirins or other sort of derivatives of aspirin itself. Right? Aspirin is a cyclooxygenase pathway inhibitor. It stops the production of prostaglandins, and prostaglandins, not these particular prostaglandins, but other prostaglandins, are involved with pain sensations. So that's how aspirin works. It interferes with the cyclooxygenase pathway. Okay. But we're only looking at right, these mediator ones themselves. So when you look at these different sort of mediators, these are ones that need to be synthesized Right? So the cells have to be stimulated to be able to release these mediators. But just like all the examples we've had before and we've talked about before, right, that's going to take a certain amount of time for this to take place. And we don't have that much time when we want to be able to go out and deal with this enemy that's coming out. So we have a whole bunch of other preformed mediators. And these are preformed vasoactive, right? They're capable of Right? having some activity in the circulatory system on these capillaries. And these are things like histamine, right? and histamine are, are basically going to be released from basal cells and those mast cells. Right? We talked about mast cells lining most every sort of, of uh, tissue space in the body, so there are mast cells everywhere. So the mast cells are there to be able to release histamine when they're needed. And also, another major one is serotonin. And serotonin is going to be released from the platelets. And clearly, right from all those pictures I've shown you before, the blood is full of platelets. So we have all of these preformed amines that are ready at the same time. So we have a whole bunch of different right, sort of pharmacological agents that are out there that are going to be able to work on these pathways and they're always on TV all the time, right? We have like Nasonex and Flonase, right? Nasonex is not the one, that's the one with Antonio Banderas, right? Sort of buzzing around as the bee, right? So that one, those drugs, 
They're second generation drugs and they're there to stop prostaglandins. So they're cyclooxygenase inhibitors, right? Clearly, right? The patents on aspirin have expired a long time ago, so we need a whole bunch of new different drugs. So we have drugs that will specifically target the cyclooxygenase pathway, all right? Then we also have other drugs, right, to stop leukotrienes, things like Singulaire. Right? You can see Singulaire commercials on TV, and they stop leukotrienes. Now, right, is Singulaire better than Nasonex? I don't know. They probably work the same way, right? The drug companies probably spend millions and millions and millions of dollars Right, by taking physicians out to dinner and you know, uh, trying to have them right, write more prescriptions for Nasonex rather than Flonase. I mean, who knows? They probably work the same way. But right, once one drug company right, had all of their sort of battery of drugs that lead against uh, prostaglandins, right, Nasonex, then the singular people thought, okay, well, you know, if we can get rid of some of uh, the, right, if we have activity with prostaglandins, and that's going to help. Maybe we can have some inhibition of leukotrienes, and that's going to help, right? We can corner the market on the leukotriene sort of derivatives. Right? So you have all these different drugs out there that are specifically targeting these two different pathways. And clearly, these pathways are involved not so much with inflammation, well, you could think of allergy as sort of an allergic reaction. You can think of asthma as an, as an inflammatory reaction, right? And allergies as an inflammatory reaction. So that's what they're using them for to try to control, right, the inflammatory response in those different situations of allergy and asthma. Okay. So the third step that we need to be able to take place is... Now we need to get the cells out there. So the liquid portion of blood is making its way out there. Now we need to get the cells out there. So this is leukocyte, right? It's called exudation right? and phagocytosis. So it's called exudation. It's also called emigration, right? It's not immigration. Immigration is coming into a place. Emigration is leaving a place. So those cells need to be able to leave the bloodstream and make their way out into the tissue spaces. It's also called diapedesis. It's also called extravasation. So we need to make our way out into the tissue spaces with the cells themselves. So what's going to take place here is, right, if we sort of look right, at these endothelial cells, And we're looking across here. Again, we're inside the capillary. So what we're going to be able to see is we're going to be actually be able to see cells sort of squishing their way through here. Right? And this could be a macrophage. This could be a neutrophil. It could be any sort of cell. And they're basically going to wedge themselves in between the two cells, and they're going to make their way out into the tissue spaces. Right? Because remember... We still, we can't, if we open this whole thing up, then we're going to get uncontrolled flow taking place out there. So these cells are going to be able to push their way through and make their way out into the tissue spaces themselves, right? So the cells are going to be able to do this because of the increase in vascular permeability. 
They're going to be able to get into the area. Because think about what's taking place here. If these endothelial cells aren't, quote unquote, leaky, right? if they're nice and tight here, and they're not letting anything sort of through, this sort of a normal sort of capillary bed, right? every time right, the heart pumps and the blood flow goes through here, we've got very, very fast blood flow. Think about water making its way through a pipe. We got very, very fast blood flow here because there's nothing to stop the blood flow. On the other hand, right, now again, I know that the cells, right, stay right next to each other, but let's assume that with this leakiness, we're starting to poke holes here in these capillary beds. So as this pulse of energy comes through and this increased blood flow takes place here and we get more blood flowing out, means the blood's going to just slow down just a little bit. Just a little bit, the blood's going to slow down. And then by the time it gets over here, right, it's back to flowing very fast again, but from no sort of leakiness to no sort of leakiness, in between, the, blood's gonna, the flow of the blood is just going to slow down just a little bit. And that's going to allow, right, if we sort of look at something maybe in right, a little bit bigger here. So normally, right, the cells are just caught up in the stream and they're going right through, well, actually, <laughs> right, I've been telling you this whole time, right, that the red blood cells are going to make it through the capillaries, right, all by themselves. So we got red cells, we got all sorts of cells out there. So just as this is starting to go through and all these cells are sort of in the middle of the stream, take away a little bit of that energy, and what happens? Now the cells right, start sort of bouncing around, and they're hitting the side, they're hitting the edge, because they're not caught up in that flow anymore. Right? Think about when you, when you have, like, a, you're sitting on the curb and you throw something into a puddle or, or water that's flowing along a curb, right? It's going very, very fast. And once it gets to maybe a driveway and it sort of veers off the driveway, it gets a little bit slower in front of the driveway, and it speeds right up again on the other side of the driveway, right? Because now it's back into the flow itself. So those cells are moving. They're in increased sort of energy as the blood is moving along. And now with dilation, the blood flow is going to decrease, and now things like neutrophils and other white blood cells are going to be much closer right, to the epithelium, to these cells that are lining the capillary itself. And what you can start to see is you get this buildup of cells, and it's called pavementing, so that the neutrophils themselves start sticking to those endothelial cells. And it's called pavementing, because in the early days, when people started to see this phenomena, and you can actually see it, right? People used to use rabbit ears, and they put microscopes so you can look into rabbit ears. Rabbit ears are very, very translucent almost, right? Rabbits, they have a lot of blood flow into their ears because they use their ears as a way to control their body temperature. You can dissipate a lot of heat from a rabbit ear. So if you started to look at rabbit ears, you could actually see these areas where cells were starting to build up. And it's called pavementing 
because right, they didn't have concrete or asphalt back in the day. Right? They had cobblestones. Right? So you could start to see, right, if you've ever seen a cobblestone street around, right, it sort of looks like, right, sort of, just sort of this regular sort of look to the, to, the, to the surface itself. So that's what we're looking at. We're looking at pavementing in here. So we're seeing these cells starting to stick to the endothelial cells and start to stick, stick to each other. And they're eventually going to cross those endothelial cells and make their way out into the tissue spaces. And when they make their way out into the tissue spaces, that's where they're going to be able to start getting in contact with the invaders themselves. So the other thing that's taking place at the same time that this is taking place is we're getting those chemotactic factors. Right? Remember we said chemotaxis, cell movement? We're getting those chemotactic factors are building up out here, and they're diffusing away, right, from a, from a point of high concentration, right, to lower concentration and lower concentration and lower. So as these cells start to make their way out, they're going to start moving up that concentration gradient out to where that injury has taken place. So they're going to start moving out in that direction. So the neutrophils are going to move. Hepatoxis is going to take place. We've talked about C5A, leukotriene B4 is also a very potent chemotactic uh, agent, right? So chemotaxis is going to be determined by substance in the environment. We need to draw these cells, right? We have all this mechanism taking place to get all those cells out there, and now we need to pinpoint those, those cells out there, right? Formal peptides, things like f met are out there, right? F-met, right? It's, formal, it's a, a formal group on methionine. We don't have it. Bacteria have it, right? The first protein in the, in the uh, first amino acid in the protein sequence. And when macrophages and other phagocyt phagocytic cells start to break down bacterial products, they release these formal peptides, right? So we've keyed in, right, on this formal group as a, another attack announcement. The only reason that those formal groups are out there onto methionine is because, right, there are bacterial proteins out there and those bacterial proteins are being destroyed. So here we can see, right, if we're looking at this sort of microscopic projection, right? we can see neutrophils in green out here, right? and if we look at the blood vessels in red and salmonella that's being out here, this would be time zero. So you can start to see more and more and more neutrophils making their way out into the tissue spaces. So we see those things taking place. And what we can also see is we can see sequential changes in the endothelial cells themselves, on the surface of the epithelial cells, right? We see receptors that appear that are going to be able to favor neutrophils. And those receptors are going to be stimulated by C5A and more leukotrienes and cytokines. So what we're going to do is we're going to get right, more receptors that are being stimulated on the cell surface here. And those neutrophils are going to have 
receptors on their cell surface that are going to be able to interfere with and start binding to those, recept to those receptors on the endothelial cells. Right? Later on, receptors are going to appear that can favor macrophages and lymphocytes. So that's how we're going to move from neutrophils being the first cell out into the tissue space to a little bit later on, macrophages and lymphocytes making their way out into the tissue space. Okay. So what's going to start to take place is, if we're looking at this, right, this lining here, we're going to be able to start stimulating more and more of these receptors. So we're basically getting right, better and better Velcro as we get closer to where this insult is. So as we get really close, these cells have a lot of receptors on the cell surface, and these cells toward the edge get less and less and less. So these neutrophils are falling out of solution, right, due to decreased blood flow, due, due to vascular permeability. So these neutrophils come along, and they hit, and they bounce, and then they stick, and they stick, and they stick, and they stick, until they're stuck right here. And that's how they start moving across the epithelial layer. So they come up, right? They're sort of turning. They hit, they hit. More and more of these receptors take place. They come in. They stop. And now they're going to make their way right through the tissue spaces, right? So the same thing can be able to take place. So they're going to get, right, these receptors are going to interact with receptors on the surface of those cells that are lining the capillaries, right? We go from, right? sort of coming up here, bouncing, tethering, rolling. They become activated, they stop, and then they make their way through. So here are a bunch of receptors on the surface of the white blood cell, a bunch of receptors on the surface of the endothelial cells. So that's how those cells are going to make their way through and eventually stop and make their way out into the tissue spaces. Yeah, we got a whole bunch of, uh, right? Things like fever, right? Everybody knows what fever is all about. All right. Test on Wednesday. Good luck. <laughs>